Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Greetings and salutations, listeners. You have returned for another episode of Cycling in Alignment, and for that, I am grateful. Today's bicycle fitting fractal wormhole takes us into a conversation with Happy Friedman. Happy's been bike fitting for about 40 years, which is about four times longer than I have. This was a valuable opportunity to learn Happy's methods of operation and his thoughts and practices when viewing a client on the bike. And for me, it was a valuable conversation to learn from the perspectives of this, you might say, grandfather of bike fitting. Happy's been doing it long enough to really be one of the people who started bike fitting. He's kind of like Tom Ritchie, except in bike fitting. I will say that Happy and I don't agree on everything. He's got some methods that I'm not quite on the same page with. And I'm just being honest here. And I'll also say that Happy's got so much more experience than I do that I readily recognize that maybe I'm just not there yet. It is entirely possible I can't quite see what he does. So... There you have it. We're all on our journey. A couple of brief points about our conversation. One thing I'll mention at some point in our discussion, I misspoke and I said that the lats support the arms. And that's not true. The deltoids and traps support the arms. The lats pull the arms down, amongst other things. Just wanted to make sure that that little anatomical detail did not go unwitnessed or clarified. The second bit that's more significant perhaps is that Happy and I talk about a time when there were less complaints about saddle sores. And Happy has been around long enough to observe this. And his input is that when riders rode on leather saddles, there were far less complaints. And what he means by that, I want to clarify, is not a leather saddle that we might see on the market today, which is really a plastic or thermoplastic or carbon-infused thermoplastic base covered by a thin layer of foam and then a leather top cover. That's not what Happy means. He's talking about a true old-school Brooks leather saddle, which is a giant chunk of cowhide spread between the rails. And that piece of cowhide has tension and on many Brooks saddles, for example, there are probably other manufacturers who make similar models, but Brooks is sort of the most well-known old-school leather saddle. You can apply more or less tension by adjusting a screw at the end, or a nut, I should say, at the end of the saddle. And this enables you to make the ride harsher or a little more forgiving. The advantage to these saddles is that they broke in to the shape of your undercarriage. The disadvantage is it took a few hundred kilometers to do that, but once they broke in, these saddles tended to travel from bike to bike. They were well-made and lasted a long time. And once you took the effort to break it in, you might as well just keep using it. This is what happy means when he's talking about a leather saddle. I want to be clear on that point. Another thing I'll mention is happy and I have a discussion about carrying retail items in the fit studio and happy does not carry any items for sale in his fit studio. He sells service only. And I can see his logic in this. The idea is 
simply that he doesn't want to have a, a conflict of interest between himself offering a service and selling some object. That object could be a stem or a seat post or handlebars or a saddle or shoes. And I understand his perspective for sure. What that allows is for the client to walk through the door and have confidence that the fitter is giving them their honest opinion, that they are giving them an authentic recommendation. So if Happy says you need Lake Shoes, then the client can go out the door knowing that because Happy doesn't sell Lake Shoes, he didn't have a vested interest in making that recommendation. It's pretty clear. I do sell things in my fit studio. And for me, I have a slightly different perspective. And that is simply that for me, these retail items are problem solvers. If a client comes through the door and they need a 120 millimeter stem on their bike and they've only got a 100 millimeter stem and I don't sell stems and the client doesn't have that length stem, then it's a showstopper. We have to go have the client make a trip to the bike store. I have to make a trip to the bike store and buy a stem and then bring it back and install it. And that's a giant inefficiency in the perspective uh, or in the total process of bike fitting, which has a lot of intricacy and a lot of detail. So I make the best effort I can to attempt to have all the tools I need at my disposal so I can solve problems and stems and C-posts are problem solvers. I will also say that there are certain items I carry in my fit studio that I have had the opportunity to play a role in the input of the engineering or design of these products. The perfect example of this is the wave handlebar. The RR bar, before it came out and was designed, I had the opportunity to work with the team at Coefficient Cycling to have influence on how the bars were designed. And I will consistently recommend that product to my clients because, in my opinion, it's the best bar in the market. No other bar even comes close. In fact, some bars are miles away. So in that case, I know I can recommend an RR bar to my clients based on the fact that it's got superior engineering and ergonomic performance benefits. This, I feel, makes it an authentic recommendation for me, even though, yes, I sell them and I do make a markup on that product. I'm not bashing fitters who sell stuff. Everyone's got to pay their rent and you can sell service, you can sell objects, you can sell things. All of these serve a point. And ultimately, remember that economics is simply an exchange of money for someone else's time and energy. That's all it is. And we play the economic game all the time. Unless you're Leonardo DiCaprio living in the Alaskan wilderness battling bears, this is the game we play. And I'm happy to pay people for their time and energy when I need a new phone, for example, or when I need to purchase a new set of tires for my gravel bike. I'm not going to go out and make tires. You see what I'm getting at? So there's nothing shameful or bad about economics, but there can be a rather pointed edge when a fitter sells only certain a certain brand of something in the studio, in particular those items that involve contact points. That's specifically shoes, saddles, and handlebars, and you could argue even pedals. All of those have ergonomic implications. And while there are some saddles, or some handlebars, some pedals and shoes that tend to serve a larger group of riders, ultimately the goal of any fitter should be to send the rider out the door with the best possible fit solution, independent of what manufacturer makes that solution. 
So I just want to clarify that point. If you are shopping for a bike fitter, then you may want to take into consideration a little bit about their surroundings and what stuff they're selling. It's going to be hard for a fitter to make sales with authenticity or in your best interest if they only sell a single brand of shoes, for example. If you've listened to my podcast about how to buy a bike shoe, you'll know what I mean by that. The best way to buy a shoe is to go to a big bike shop with a large selection, ask the salesperson to bring you one shoe from each manufacturer in every size in in your size and leave you alone for 45 minutes so you can try them all on them back to back. That's the best way to figure out what shoe is going to be the best option for you. Not to go to a bike shop with one shoe only and ask them and figure out what size you've got. Contact points are highly individual. I'm going to stop talking now so we can enjoy our conversation with Happy Friedman. Thanks for listening. Happy Friedman, and welcome to Cycling in Alignment. Thank you for making time to speak with me today. Oh, my pleasure. Please tell us a bit about um, your path. How did you How did you find bike fitting? How did you come into bike fitting as a passion and a career? Well, I started before most people knew what it was. I started in 1978 when I was working in a bike shop and switched handlebars for somebody who they were too big for. And it is as things became available, I took advantage of them. Mm-hmm. So we, we start with basic handlebars and we go to cranks and we start looking at crank arm angles and we start looking at spacers and then we start looking at actual frame design. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize when I first started doing this that they could be built to order anymore. So from that perspective, you started, is it fair to say disassembling the way bikes came to the consumer and critically thinking about all these dimensions, some of which, many of which are taken kind of for granted. I've been thinking about that since I got my first custom bike in 1978. It was a Jim Red K. A steel lug frame, I would assume? Gorgeous lugs. Do you still have it? No, that one has gone on into history. Okay. Most of them have gone on into history. I'm a believer in, you should know the name of the guy who built your bicycle. (laughs) And tell us how your journey went from there. How did you get more involved in in bike fit? And what what were your next steps? As you said, bike fitting really didn't exist back then. No, I think it was Michael Sylvester and I and Andy Pruitt without knowing each other. Okay. So I was switching out bars and stems and trying to make what I got in work. Then at one point, I opened my own little bike shop in Kingston, New York. And I had a guy come in and say, can you figure out what size I need? I'm having one built for me. Mm-hmm. Well, the playground has just opened up. And I've never stopped since. <laughs> and eventually, down the road, you ended up being uh, involved with Ben Serrata's fitting school. Along the way, I got hit by a cab before that. Mm. So uh, part of it was trying to get myself back on a bike. And then uh, I was offered a chance to teach for Ben. I think I was the second incarnation of the school. Okay. And Michael Sylvester was the first. And we would bring different things to the table. 
I had more of a background in foot orthoses, orthotics. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually worked with Bill Peterson, who taught me how to make foot orthoses. And mm-hmm. we worked on developing a cycling version after the ski boot ones. Mm-hmm. I was his test dummy. And so Bill Peterson, just to paint the context for people, is I suppose you could consider one of the grandfathers of foot orthotics in cycling shoes. It sounds like you were intimately involved in the development of that process. And if I recall correctly, I never got the chance to work with Bill, but he had a system where riders were on the bike in their cycling position and he would use a laser to track how their knee, the knee loading under under load in the cycling position. That's his system. I've moved on from there. Okay. Uh, For the last 20 years, I worked at the hospital for special surgery in -hmm. New York where I was doing my fitting, but I was also making foot orthoses, orthotics, and occasionally braces and other things, not just for cyclists, but for other patients. Mm -hmm. And I became very opinionated about what I think a foot orthotic should look like in a cycling shoe. Will you unpack that philosophy for us, please? Sure. You have a number of issues that you have to deal with when you're making an orthotic. Issue number one, will it be tolerated? Can the person wear what you're making? Issue number two, can you put it in their shoe? And issue number three for me, does it meet the prescriptive needs of the doctor for the patient? Mm -hmm. In other words, will they wear it? Can I make it work in their shoes that they want to wear? And does it fix the problem? Mm -hmm. Those are issues you don't have to deal with in a bike shop other than fit the shoe and keep them comfortable. Yeah, I would say I have a pretty extensive list of clients who've come to me with foot orthotics that have been made by podiatrists or just footbed makers um, and they're really not suited to go in a cycling shoe. And so I know exactly what you mean. A lot of times the heel cups too has too much volume. So the client loses the ability to get the heel all the way into the shoe and they lose purchase there and the foot becomes unstable or frequently they just, there's too much volume in the footbed overall. The top cover is too thick. Well, the problem is most of these people know what runners like Mm -hmm. and they confuse our feet with runners yeah. We need a low volume. We need a minimalist device. Mm-hmm. I think of it more as a proprioception device than I think of it as a hard, rigid correction device. Because rigid devices are not tolerated well on a long ride. And if your foot swells, it doesn't fit. Yeah. Yeah, that's a perfect segue into my next question, which was how do you feel about the spectrum of a footbed that's a little more proprioceptive in nature. We might use as an off-the-shelf example, the G8 would be a good example of that. The arch is very pliable. It's really there to tell the foot that there's something under it, but it's not there to mechanically support the foot or prevent pronation or supination so much because the arch is so mobile that that stability is really left up to the ankle and foot of the patient or the rider, right? Whereas a much more a stiffer footbed like a, a Tread Labs um, sorry, I'm forgetting the name. They have a pace, which is a, a thermal plastic, which is pretty rigid. Then they have a carbon model, which is much stiffer. And this is a, an example of a rigid 
footbed that's really going to provide uh, a very stiff platform for the arch and the heel to be supported by. How, what, it sounds like you're more on the side of the proprioceptive for most riders or all the time. How would you say that fits your philosophy? Yeah. We see what their needs are. Do we have to deal with lesions on a foot? Do we have to deal with any other pathology? Is it an unstable foot? Pes planus, does it collapse? Or is there no structure because it goes up and down and all over the place? Mm-hmm. You have to treat the foot, not anything else. And as far as how rigid or how soft, part of that's an issue of toleration. Mm-hmm. Part of that's an issue of mechanics. And this is where it can get very confusing for people looking for a foot orthosis. The more rigid the device is, the more power to transfer from your foot to the pedal. Sounds like a wonderful idea, mm-hmm. but it means you may be blocking and locking out the plantar fascia. Many of the people listening have had plantar fasciitis, which you can tell because the pain is the first step or two in the morning. The plantar fascia is a pump and it pumps fluid out of your foot. If you get a shoe that's too rigid or put a orthosis in that's too rigid, you can block the pumping mechanism and lock it up mm-hmm. and therefore make the foot less efficient at pumping fluid out. You ride occasionally at altitude and your feet tend to swell when you do that, everybody's do. Mm-hmm. Or it could be a hot July ride and your feet are swelling without the help of the plantar fascia, you're just going to keep feeding the swelling because you're not moving fluid as well. Mm-hmm. So there are reasons you do not want to lock the foot completely down in a cycling shoe. And along that same line of thought, when someone drives the pedal, the the force we could say originates at the hip and travels through the upper leg and the lower leg and into the ankle and foot. And in that process, I'm sure you'll agree with this statement. You know, we tend to think of joints very simplistically. We tend to classify them as ball joints or hinge joints. And that's on a very 50,000 foot view that's accurate, but really all joints are triplanar to some degree. So when you generate force at the hip, we have rotation of the upper leg, rotation of the lower leg, rotation either internal or external of the foot you know for someone who's a pronator we're going to have internal rotation typically of the femur for example and when you get to the foot then we've got some rotation and and people tend to think i think tell me if you agree with this happy i think a lot of people tend to talk about pronation or supination sometimes but frequently pronation is a bad thing but the reality is it's a phase of gait it's a phase of gait. It's part of gait. It's also part of power production, right? Anytime you push, lift a heavy object off the ground, if you're squatting down to pick up a weight or a cooler or your cat, we have a pretty overweight cat. So that's why it comes to mind. When I pick up my cat, you know, I've got a, I'll have some, some pronation that happens, some rotational force that happens in the upper leg, lower leg and foot. And if we completely restrict that motion, then we're going to impede the amount of force that we can drive the foot against the ground with. Is that, or in cycling, drive the pedal with? To some degree, yes, but there's more to the picture. It's where does the power come from Mm -hmm. to drive the foot? And from my point of view, the power comes from the glutes 
and from your hip driving down more necessarily than your foot pushing up. So we have a bigger muscle, more power supply in your glutes than you're gonna get out of your quad below. So that's the big gem you're trying to tap into Yes. When you when you're riding. Agreed. So you're gonna you might find this surprising. I don't touch your cleats and when I start a fit, I may not even adjust them during the fit at all because I want to make all my corrections that I can make from above. And if I'm doing things down below, I'm I may mask some pathology in your hips or in your lower back. So sometimes I don't do anything to your shoes mm -hmm. in a fit because there's enough going on that I want to. I don't want to mask it, or I don't want to change what you're doing. So your mechanics don't do something I'm not you're not used to before we even get started. Okay. I will replace a broken cleat. I will put one on if you lost it. But I don't want to change what you're doing until I understand what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't always happen during the day of the fit. Not quite classic fitting. <laughs> well, when you've been doing it 40 years, I'm sure uh, your methods certainly evolve. At least I hope so. Mine, mine have evolved in the decade I've been doing it for sure. Well, you learn about the little bits and pieces yeah. and how they go together. Yeah. So uh, yeah, on that topic, I, I find clients frequently, one of the questions I get when I'm interacting with my clients before we have our fit appointment, they'll email me and they'll say, I'm really out of shape or I'm still recovering from an injury or I had surgery not that long ago, or, you know, I crashed a few weeks ago and they, I think they perceive the question is commonly, do you want me to be in kind of the best shape possible before you come and see me? And my perspective is, any snapshot in time is worthwhile. I just need to know the context behind that. But if you've got, if you've been struggling with a chronic injury, it doesn't, it actually makes my job potentially a little more challenging. If you got a whole bunch of chiropractic, acupuncture, body work, deep tissue massage, and you, you know, allegedly straightened yourself out and then came in and saw me, if I'm good enough, hopefully I'd still see the pattern anyway. But there are moments when, when athletes can really respond positively to those therapies, and then they're kind of camouflaging the deeper issues. It's almost better for me to see a rider when they're at their worst. Oh, I totally agree. Okay. Uh, I see often the walking wounded, mm -hmm. and I, you treat them differently. If you've got a pro who's in the peloton, you can treat them by temporarily accommodating their change in body positions from trauma, from the loss of sleep from all of this affects how you sit on a bike. So for a pro, we may make temporary changes in st saddle, stem, and bars. And I know that sounds like sacrilege to some people mm -hmm. who say your bike is sacrosanct as it's set up, mm -hmm. but I'll move stems, I'll move bars, I'll move saddles to keep a rider from being decued mm -hmm. and falling out the back. Um, so that's one side of it. Mm -hmm. The other side of it is I see hip replacements, knee replacements, um, shoulder replacements, all sorts of traumatic injuries on the bike. 
there we need to figure out how to make the body work and then fit the bike to the body. That's a good point. I've had this discussion with many fitters about kind of the spectrum of, I won't name the company, but there's a company out there that repeatedly says their goal is to fit the bike to the rider. And that's their general MO, you know, whatever you want to call it, their mission statement. And then on the other side, we have the education of the rider about their postural syndromes, the education of the rider about their dysfunction, their asymmetries and fitting the bike. How I tend to describe it in this case, and this is for riders who are not in the category you just mentioned, you know, people with that are still recovering from a hip replacement or, you know, a big shoulder surgery or whatever that aside, for me, I tend to think of bike fitting as kind of buying a wedding suit for a wedding. That's about three months away, not six months away, not two years away, but three months. The analogy being that I want to set up the bike. I want to educate the client about how to sit with, for example, some attention to axial extension and anterior rotation of the pelvis or forward rotation of the pelvis so that they can develop proper breathing mechanics so they can recruit glute more effectively so they can protect the condition of their spine over time. And I want to set up the bike to enable that position when they are paying attention to posture. Now, if they come in and they exhibit symptoms of poor postural awareness or a lot of flexion in the spine, a lot of that very rainbow shaped spine that you used to see in old photos of Sean Kelly and Stephen Roach, for example, to pick on two really good cyclists. And we have that position. Then I'm coaching them to elongate their spine and focus a little bit on axial extension. And I'm explaining all the reasons why that works. I want to set up their bike to encourage that position. If I put them in a Sean Kelly reach, they're going to have no choice but to flex and round over. But on the other hand, if I go too far and make it unsustainable, then of course I work against the function of the rider and making improvement. So that's kind of my wedding suit analogy. What do you have thoughts on that whole equation? Uh, yeah, I start with the airway. I want to see how they breathe. I want to see how much volume I have a spirometer mm-hmm. that I can use when I need it. So I'm starting with very simple listening to their breathing, watching their breathing. Are they belly breathing? Are they breathing through their intercostals? Are they nose breathing? Are they mouth breathing? Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I will have people do when we're looking at them is put an index finger in their ear you listen for the click that will tell you whether you got TMJ Mm -hmm. TMJ can affect the airway. So an underbite will do that. So we want to get the jaw pushed slightly forward to allow better airflow. Mm -hmm. And we work piece by piece from the mouth down into the torso, getting them to lift their ribs cage. And I'm shooting for a J spine, not an S spine. Uh-huh. Most people who sit and work at a computer, myself included, have a little bit of an S spine because that's the way everything stacks up. Your core kind of goes on vacation and you're bent over. So nothing is straight, mm-hmm. you know, unless you've got a walking desk, which you can work on standing up and then you can keep the spine in proper alignment. So a J spine basically is learning to bend in your hip Mm -hmm. while keeping the back relatively flat and arguably not using the muscles you don't need to support you at the time. 
people use too many muscle groups to do too little on a bike. Mm -hmm. So what we want to do is we want to figure out first how you breathe and then everything comes that you do after that comes in defense of airway. Mm-hmm. Too often we sacrifice airway for perceived aerodynamic advantage, for perceived performance advantages. And I say perceived because we think if we look more aerodynamic, we are going to travel faster. Mm-hmm. You don't go faster if you're not breathing. You run out of gas, so to speak, and you go anaerobic much earlier than you need to. Mm-hmm. So we look at posture to allow the largest volume of air and the easiest exchange possible. What would be some of the ways that uh, a rider would sacrifice their airway for aerodynamics? Are we talking about too narrow of a handlebar? Are we talking about slamming the saddle forward? Sometimes too wide a handlebar. Uh-huh. You can lock out the intercostals from breathing if your hands are too close together. You can open the intercostals and the abdominals if the bar is narrower. Uh, what I do when I'm fitting is I measure to the volume of the lungs, not to the width of your shoulders when I'm fitting bars. Mm-hmm. I'm looking for the elasticity. When we, If you take a simple exercise, stick your hand straight out in front of you, and then you can uh, – let me st- – and then open, do both hands. Mm-hmm. Take a deep breath. Inhale and exhale. And then open your hands all the way wide. Do the same again. You feel how you get less volume as you get all the way open? I'm not sure I felt less volume, but I definitely felt tension around T12, probably from the lats supporting the arms. And your intercostals aren't moving. Mm-hmm. And the elasticity of the intercostals can make a big difference in your volume. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking at the line in your wrist. I'm looking at your elbows. I want everything to be relaxed that can be relaxed to allow your ribs to expand and perform their job. Mm-hmm. If you're bent over and you have a half curve in your lower back, you're going to lock out your diaphragm. Right. It's basically it's stuck under your rib cage. Right. So we're looking for a position that allows the diaphragm to open and draw volume as well as your intercostals expand to take more of the air you're inhaling. It's if you don't get there, you're reducing your performance mm-hmm. and it, you can basically kill yourself trying to get performance by not breathing. Mm-hmm. And we've all seen people riding who are gritting their teeth and holding their breath. It's a classic novice racer. They think they're bridging the gap. So they're bent over, they're curved. They're leveraging for what they perceive as power. In reality, they're just running out of gas. But it feels fast because... You can hear your heart racing. I think it's also quite common for people to sort of suffer from beginner syndrome, or you might say, you might even call it imposter syndrome, where people start a new sport, a new activity, and they feel very self-conscious that they're, you know, air quotes, not very good at it. And 
they feel self-conscious about that. And as a result, they sort of try harder than they should. But we all know at the elite end of sport, what, what is elite sport? It's a blend of effort and relaxation. That is the synergy of flow state. And when you're trying too hard, you can actually be self-defeating. You can you can put in more neuromuscular tension, more effort, more nervous system stimulation, but you can be overstimulated where you're just contracting muscles and clenching your face and making the pain face and, you know, causing tension in different areas. And that restricts movement and flow of muscles. It restricts blood flow. Ultimately, the harder you clench a muscle, the less blood flow it has. Exactly. One of the reasons I have a pulse oximeter mm-hmm. when I'm fitting, mm-hmm. I can stick it on a finger and you can see how you're cutting down the oxygen saturation while you're working. It's a wonderful little tool, doesn't take up much space and is very effective for showing you how you're burning yourself out. And so on that topic, have you ever worked with the Moxie device to look at at SMO2 in the quadriceps, for example, or in the glutes or? I haven't. Okay. Um, I, I, I used to work in the motion lab at the hospital for special surgery. Mm-hmm. When I first started working there, it was, we had more toys than anybody else. The lab is still there. It still has more toys than anybody else. We have EMGs. We have pressure plates. We have motion capture with 14 cameras. We have high-speed video. We can sync all of these different technologies together to make one picture. And basically, you can pick on everything. Um, The problem was, when I do that, I don't get a better outcome than when I was fitting without it. I was just adding layers of technology, Mm -hmm. layers of cost, and layers of time. Most people who use the technology uh, use it in little short bursts. So you'll see a file that's a 10-second file. And they're making their decisions about your fit from this short little video clip. Mm -hmm. I would do upwards of a two-minute file multiple times during the fit. And by saying I, I was not me alone. It was with the rest of the team. So you not only had to cover my salary, you had to cover everybody else who came into work Mm -hmm. with me to put this together. And then I would have to go crunch all the data for several hours afterward. Hmm. So I went from super technology oriented to realizing it was very time inefficient. Mm -hmm. And I have backed out. I still use lasers. I still use pulse oximeters. Um, I will use a um, metronome occasionally to teach people about cadence and get their leg speed where it should be. Um, But I'm now traveling very light for altering shoes. um, I will do that. I'll alter saddles. That's, but I don't think you need as much technology to fit a bike as most people think you do. Mm. If you know what you're doing, 
I'm sure you do this the moment the person walks into the room. You're evaluating their gait. You're watching the swing of their arms. Most of the information you need to develop, you can pick up with your eyes, your ears. You can hear the changes in cadence. Mm -hmm. You can hear the irregularity of along a chain. If somebody does not have a smooth stroke, you can palpate and feel which muscles they're using. Mm -hmm. It's all available if you take the time to learn how to do it. You don't have to be a doctor. You don't have to be a nurse. I'm a bike fitter. It's what I do. But to do what I do well, I look at other disciplines and I learn from them. I once had a woman come in whose glutes were asleep. She couldn't generate as much power as she would like. So we started off with an exam with a physical therapist. Um, I often do that because I find they will pick up on things we won't. Mm -hmm. And when we went back to doing the fit, uh, and it's not that I can't do my own exam. I've done that many times. But sometimes it's nice to have a fresh set of eyes. Mm -hmm. It's also um, important time management. I have found that my patients do not always have the patience to sit with me for two or three hours. Sometimes 90 minutes is all I'm going to get of their attention. And then there's no point in going further because they've checked out. Yeah. So using other people's time, uh, I get to sit in and watch somebody else work before I go to work with you. And it makes me more effective at doing what I'm doing because you're not bored with me when we get started. Mm -hmm. And you can be bored with me before we get started if we have a long exam. Right. And sometimes it's more complicated than others. So I have stopped doing my own exams because of that, so I can focus on you. And this goes back to fitting a bike. What are you, who are you fitting, the bike or the rider? We're fitting you, the rider, not the bike. Mm -hmm. The bike doesn't complain two hours out if the saddle's not happy. The rider complains if they're not happy with the saddle. So we have to keep that in mind. Who is our audience? Who are we taking care of? Mm -hmm. Often we get mixed up with we can do this and this to the bike. What can we do for the rider to make them more comfortable? Mm -hmm. the, the bike is not going anywhere. It's not going to change. Right. Yeah, and I find on that topic, I frequently end up in fit sessions educating my riders on the difference between you might say pain and suffering. And in the context of riding, the way I'm thinking about this is suffering is something we intentionally sign up for. When you go climb a 30 minute hill at 12% grade, you're going to suffer. You, your legs are going to hurt. Your lungs are going to hurt. Your back's going to be a little bit sore, perhaps from lactic acid buildup. But pain is when you're nether regions go to sleep. Pain is when your toes fall asleep because your shoes don't fit properly or your footbeds don't fit in the shoes. Pain is when you have sharp, uh, sharp discomfort in one side of a shoulder or the neck or your lower back is on fire on one side and it becomes debilitative and you can no longer produce power. And those are two separate categories of experience on the bike. 
And the problem is the old school line of thought in cycling is there was no distinction between those. When you went out January 1st or December 1st, whenever you started your winter training, you expected your nuts to fall asleep or your lady bits. It was just part of toughening up and doing the kilometers. You also expected your legs and lungs to acclimate to training. And they did that through pain and soreness, but there was no differentiation. Now we're, we're starting to make progress in that. But I feel on the, on the other hand, the modern Zwift era rider has taken a step backwards in that respect because now we're back in some ways where we were because of course, riding on an indoor trainer exacerbates all problems on the bike. It's repetitive stress. Yeah. You're not able to move unless you bring a trainer, a set of rollers in and can hook up. You're, you know, you're going to just do the same thing over and over again and doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results is a form of insanity. Right. Um, You know, the question is, what's the purpose of doing this? Is it to entertain yourself racing a computer or are you training? Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm of the school that says, if I'm training, I don't do anything that can lead to possible injury or distraction from my desired goal. Mm -hmm. Uh, I also used to coach. I spent more than a decade coaching at Columbia University Mm -hmm. and I did development camps for Eddie B. So I'm rider centric. I don't want to see time and energy spent on things that in the long run are not productive. Mm -hmm. You can, there's lots of alternatives out there to smart training. You know, you need to know what you need to know. You need to think about where you're riding or racing what kind of events you're doing. Uh, I'm a big fan of picking an event and then reverse engineering my training mm-hmm. from the date backwards. Yep. This is where my fitting overlaps because where you are on the bike in December is hopefully not where you are on the bike in March as your season starts. Hopefully we've made you stronger Hopefully we may allowed you to breathe better. Hopefully your balance is better. And most importantly, hopefully you've learned how to move on your bike. Most people think bike fit is giving you a sweet spot. There is no sweet spot if you're riding well. You shift your weight around depending on the, if you're climbing, you're up and forward. If you're descending, you're down and back. You're moving on the bike all the time. If you sit in a sweet spot, I can guarantee your ratios are going to bother you. Mm. If you're in perpetual motion as you ride, you stand a lot less of a chance of having severe saddle pain. So I'm going to tell you a little story. Back in about 1978 or 79, when the bike show was still in New York, I went And I brought an article I had read in one of the cycling trades that said Shimano brakes stop better than Campanola brakes. You're saying what do brakes have to do with fit? Well, I walked right into the Campanola booth up to old man Campy. Mm. And he was there probably with his son who was translating. And I said, I'm a big fan. My bikes are all Campy. This article is upsetting me. 
He looks at me and he smiles. My bike, my brakes are not for stopping your bicycle. Mm -hmm. My brakes are to make you go faster. And he proceeded to go through how if you drop your shoulder in and you lightly touch the front brake on the corner you're trying to get into, the bike will dive much quicker with better traction. Yes. This is suddenly where fitting changed in my life. Mm. I'm not fitting for a spot. I'm fitting to get you so you can move to different spots. I want your right shoulder to go in for a right-hand turn. I want your left shoulder for a left-hand turn. Many people also complain that their bike feels light on the back end as they come through a turn. So they have to hit their brakes, slow down, and then accelerate. Mm -hmm. Very inefficient. What you want to do is help them get their weight back on the wheel so they can get traction and power out of the corner. Mm -hmm. You've seen people who go into a corner and they're on somebody's wheel and they get dropped because they can't stay with them. They can't generate the power to get out or they can't hold the corner. So they hit their brakes and they're back out. Mm -hmm. As If you're not racing, you still want to stay with the riders who are in your group. If you're riding on a weekend and if you're racing, that's going to cost you a shitload of calories. Yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> but you, you need to plan accordingly with what you're doing on the bike. And you need to understand what you want from a fit. So my fits are about movement. They're not isolating you in one spot. They're teaching you where you need to be, when you need to be there, and mm. anticipate. I was in Montreal a couple of years ago, uh, actually a little more than that, pre-pandemic. And they were having triathlon worlds. It was the scariest event for me, watching these riders flying to the corners and then hitting their brakes and jamming them on. You could hear squealing. Nobody could ride through the corner without hitting their brakes. This is exceedingly inefficient. Mm. If you're riding, accelerating, decelerating, acceler decelerating, and you're a triathlete, you're going to burn your legs out before you even start the run. Mm -hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. So you want to make sure when you're fitting that you're fitting to make the bike work for you so that you can corner better. You can get traction when you need it. You're not a victim of your own bike. So it sounds like you're saying you want the rider to be very dynamic on the bike and be able to adjust their center of gravity relative to the axles or the bottom bracket according to the demands of their event. Is that a fair way to synopsize that? Yeah, the only thing dynamic in a dynamic bike fit is the rider. Right. Uh, with exception of a dropper post, but yes. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, we're we're trying to, I'm trying to get you to take advantage of what your bike will do. Mm -hmm. Your limits are greater as a novice because you don't know what the bike will do than if you're a seasoned rider. And many seasoned riders, including pros, don't realize how much movement they actually generate on the bike. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you've seen some guys, you're riding in the field and you say, I'm not riding on his wheel. <laughs> yeah, during fits, I frequently I'll film people with an iPad and then I'll show them what I see. And they're shocked at how much motion they have in their hips. They're shocked at how much movement they have in their own shoulders when they're 
when I instruct them to look in the mirror and I've got a mirror that's aligned parallel with the trainer with some simple lines down the center and some references so that people can see is the shoulder moving to the left more or to the right more on each pedal stroke? Is the head directly centered over the stem or is it moving side to side? Is it moving symmetrically or asymmetrically? And when I point out these features to riders, they start to understand their own patterns of movement. And then that's an insight for them to begin to understand their own physiology, which I think is an important part of bike fitting for me. Anyway, I I've never really thought that a successful fit could happen without some education of the rider at a minimum, because if a rider comes in and I make radical changes to their bike, I lower their saddle 12 millimeters and move it back, you know, 12 millimeters. I'm just making up numbers and, and I move up their brake hoods and I uh, drop their stem a little bit and I make subtle adjustments to their cleats and we add footbeds when there were none and, you know, maybe change their stance width slightly. These are relatively common changes for me. Also, it'd be pretty common for me to change a saddle. Uh, if I make these changes, but I, and I put the riders contact points all in different positions, but I don't explain why I did it or how I want them to try to make power in this position, the basic philosophy then I think the chances of success are pretty slim because the rider's going to get on their bike and everything's just going to feel alien and they're not going to be able to make power. And that's normal when we make changes to a bike. It's normal for a rider to feel relatively powerless or disconnected. It's more often that that's the case than the opposite. Sometimes you have people who feel like rockets right out of the blocks, but more, it's more often in my experience that people feel just things feel weird or feel disconnected, feel powerless. And then over some period of time, a week, perhaps two weeks, they begin to acclimate to their new position. Their central nervous system adapts to the new loads and the new demands of their environment. And then they feel better in the long run. Exactly. We, when we grow up, we're taught how to pedal a bike. We're not taught how to ride a bike. Mm -hmm. So my assumption is in my fit, I'm going to teach you how to ride your bike. It's my numbers are not going to be the same as anybody else's numbers. For starters, my numbers change. If I measure you in the morning, I'm going to get a different set of numbers than if I measure you in the evening. Mm -hmm. So when I'm doing a fit, I'm keeping in mind that we can get up to four and a half centimeters of deviation in the spine over the course of the day. Mm -hmm. We can get up to a centimeter and a half in the arch over the course of a day. That's over five centimeters of change that you can go through over the course of the day. So don't complain to me that you're a millimeter off on your saddle, because you're not a millimeter off. Mm -hmm. You're somewhere in that middle jello land. Right. Nothing is, nothing is exact. And if you keep thinking there's a precise position where you're riding, you're going to be so limited in what you can do. Mm. You need to be able to move. You need to understand what the bike can do. You need to understand what you can do to make this work. Mm -hmm. So I'm assuming change. I'm assuming evolution in your riding. I'm also assuming fatigue because I'm making you use muscles that I know you didn't use before you met me. Yeah, I agree. I think it's, it's so common for athletes to be just completely quad dominant in cycling and I find myself explaining that concept to a lot of clients as well and educating them on why we want them to hip hinge properly. This makes me think about Paul Check's teachings and he 
breaks down, he teaches a method where you can break down all sports into six primal movements. And these are simply put a hip hinge, a squat, a lunge, a twist, a pull and a push. And the result of those is gait, right? But all sports can be broken down into those elements. Well, if we look at what cycling is on this line of thought, this method of teaching, first and foremost, it is a hip hinge. It is a static hip hinge. You are flexed at the hip. And if you cannot hip hinge properly, then you arguably, you're not, I'll say, how do I say this eloquently? Try to say it eloquently. You're not a proper cyclist. You're not doing it right if you can't hip hinge. And what do we mean by that? That means that when you forward bend, the axis of rotation should be around or through the center of the pelvis, not in the spine, not in the lumbar spine, not in the thoracic spine. The spine should remain relatively straight, right? So, and one big factor happy that I find in that simple starting point as an equation, one of the biggest factors is the saddle. Because if you're riding on an old school saddle with a bulb shaped nose or a banana shaped nose, take your pick. Physique Arione, Turbo, Flight. There's so many saddles that fit this description. As soon as you rotate the pelvis forward, which is necessary in a proper hip hinge, you are by definition increasing perineal pressure dramatically. So now you've got the rider in this wrestling match. They may know that they make better power when they rotate their pelvis forward because they can feel the glutes engaging, maybe not consciously, but instinctively. Some riders figure that out. But then that's offset with the discomfort of riding with your hips rotated forward on a saddle where you're basically getting kicked in the genitals. Man or woman, doesn't matter. It's the same problem for women and, and men, roughly speaking. I mean, obviously we're different, but. Here's a little anecdotal story. When I first started working in a shop back in the 1970s, prior to 1975, there were almost no complaints about saddles. Mm. Most people were, after the first 500 miles of hell, they were fine. Yep. All the saddles were leather. Yep. All the saddles had more surface area. The surface area spread the load over a larger surface. So you didn't get the irritation points. And the leather conformed over time. Time to you. Yes. Hence the 500 miles of hell. Yes. When we went to plastic, we started getting complaints. Yeah. We are still getting complaints from plastic. If you deal with people who are rondineers, almost to all of them will go with a leather saddle. Like a Brooks style, right? A Brooks style, a Stella Anatomica. Yeah. They will go there yeah. because they know they're spending long time and you want as much surface to defray the level of force mm-hmm. over a larger surface area. In my old practice at the hospital, we had a motion lab downstairs and upstairs. We had a prosthetics an orthotic shop. I would take saddles up to the orthotic shop and modify them. I would reshape them. I would add padding, subtract padding, make divots where there's an ulceration that's irritated saddle sore. So you could basically manipulate um, nylon or polyurethane shell into a custom saddle to help the person you were working with. Mm-hmm. So you need surface area and we are getting away from it. 
we're trying to make everything smaller, thinner, and lighter, yes. and usually stiffer. It's, yeah, you'll get better transmission of energy, but most people who ride a bike don't know how to pedal it. Mm. So they're sitting on these tiny little things that irritate. And most of the time, most people look at a bike and they say, okay, you've got a limb length discrepancy, and that's what's causing your saddle irritation because you're twisted on the saddle. Maybe it's not a limb length issue. Maybe it's your pelvis is off and we need to get you to straighten your pelvis mm -hmm. and suddenly the limb length issue is gone. Maybe your pelvis is a little twisted. So we turn the saddle five degrees off center away from the point that you're irritated. Mm -hmm. You're riding and you're not getting the pain. The saddle's just slightly off and you just pray that the mechanic next time it goes into the shop doesn't fix your saddle. <laughs> you fit the body. You meet the needs of the person. So I'm always looking at what I'm starting in the middle. I'm looking at the pelvis. I make my corrections in the middle first. I start looking at glutes, glute action. I also look at the gastroxoleus complex, also a vascular pump. If you are pedaling in a very, very aggressive position, you may lock out the gastroxoleus complex. If you tend to focus on generating power on the clock face of between one and five, you may be riding like you're wearing pumps. Now, granted, cyclists have great calves and look good in pumps, but mm -hmm. I don't want to ride in them. Right. So, so I'm looking at how at vascular return to the heart. If you're not getting the gastroxoleus complex to activate, you're not pumping up large volumes of blood. You're requiring the heart to push down to push the blood back up. Mm -hmm. There's uh, something called Sterling's Law, which talks about the volume of blood that the heart can reabsorb. So to me, it's about efficiency. I want to get the blood back up to the heart so I can cycle it through the lungs and back out again. Mm -hmm. If I'm not careful, I'm locking it out and I'm making myself again less efficient. I, my technique I call bike fit unplugged because I'm pulling your power meter out. I'm pulling almost everything out, but tracking your heart rate and letting your body do what it can do, which is breathe and circulate. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you get foot pain because your hip is off. It could be because your foot is swelling and you have an aroma. It could be because you're ischemic and you need more oxygen to the area. You need to look at the physiological responses the body has to what you're doing when you're fitting. If we put you slam jam and down on a set of bars in a very arrow position, you may be very clean in the wind tunnel, but you're physiologically a wreck. Mm -hmm. You know, we need to keep the air going in. We need to keep the blood going round. We don't always do that because we're taking a snapshot in time. We're not looking at actual function. We're looking at wind cheating as an, as the, if that's the desired object of what we're trying to do on a bike. Mm. It's not the wind cheating. It's making your whole body efficient. 
the aer the aerodynamics I worry about when I'm fitting are between your lungs and your mouth and nose. Right. I want I want airflow to be smooth around the curves in the airway, the back of the throat, going into the lungs. You can create turbulence and make it harder to breathe, or you can open the rib cage and get a much easier breath and improve tidal flow. Mm -hmm. Nothing in isolation. Everything interacts with everything else. When you make a change in one spot on the bike, you make a change everywhere. I don't measure joints when I'm fitting because you're taking everything in isolation. I look at the whole kinetic chain and see what's going on. A little change at the foot can be a big change in the hip. Um, a little change in the shoulder can be a big change in the hip or the spinal cord or your jaw and how you breathe. So nothing gets left to itself. Everything is looked at how it interconnects with everything else. I look at all the um, antagonist and antagonist muscle groups, and that's what I fit to. Using them as my tools first before I start wedging, shimming, or making an orthosis. I want to try to teach you how to use your body to make the adjustments you need to ride better. I want to know where your torso fits in space so that it will work well and be mobile. I want to know that it, you can breathe. I want to know that your back is relaxed. I want to know that you can carve an edge with your tires going around a corner, much like a skier carves an edge going down around a curve. Mm -hmm. you, you know, it's knowing where your center of mass is, understanding how it affects everything. Nothing in isolation. If you stop, look at the joint angle in the knee, and then you go to the next joint, you're not seeing how they function. You're just recording numbers as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. It's got to be a whole package. Mm. Would you agree with this statement? When someone's learning bike fitting early in their bike fitting career, you might say that they're using technology to teach themselves how to bike fit. In the midpoint of their career, you might argue that many fitters are using technology to teach the client what they're doing. As you evolve further, you realize that you can just leave technology altogether, not completely, but as a general, as a sweeping statement. And then you, you rely on the most accurate camera ever created, otherwise known as the human eye, to quote Steve Hogg. Well, I would say in the beginning, when you, you don't, we get two different pools of beginners. We get physical therapists who know the body, and we often get bike mechanics and salesmen who know the bike. Yeah. So they're, each is focused on their comfort zone yeah. and misses what the other is doing. You need to be able to be comfortable in both. And sometimes having a camera helps speed the process. Sometimes having a camera can be misleading mm. because you're not sure what you're interpreting as data. Mm -hmm. we, and as an industry, we don't teach interpretive courses. You can learn how to get, use a camera, but nobody, or for that matter, 
pressure mapping. There are very few courses that teach you how to interpret what you've just done underneath. If you're pressure mapping and you find an ulcer, you don't know if it's an ulcer until you examine the foot. You see a high point in pressure. If you're a novice, you're gonna say, that's where I wanna set the cleat. Mm -hmm. It's the most energy transfer. You need, we, we do not do ourselves a favor as an industry by not teaching these types of classes to our students. We, I'm on the board of the IBFI, mm -hmm. as is Steve, and we're probably two of its biggest critics on what people learn and what they don't learn. Because technology can be wonderful, but technology can be a crutch. And if you don't know what you're looking at, it can be interpreted wrong. And sometimes technology is being used to hide behind because you don't know what you're doing. In the hands of somebody who's skilled and who knows what they're doing, the technology can be wonderful. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think, you know, I'm not trying to bag fitters who use technology. There are a lot of good fitters out there who use quite a bit of it. But I will say that I think one of the risks of using technology that puts metrics into big piles of numbers the risk there is that we start to fit based on orthodoxy and that's never the right policy because as you said earlier you know everyone's an individual in fitting that's the first rule the only rule steve taught me when i trained with him was everyone is unique and there are no rules in bike fitting so if at the thank moment god. you thank god the moment you start to assign uh, one rider, a certain saddle height, because they looked like the rider who walked through your door the day before is the moment that you've begun to really assign metrics or make decisions based on orthodoxy. And, and there are a lot of places where orthodox numbers or standards, piles of data have meaning. I'm not saying those numbers aren't significant. They're useful. But when you make decisions based on that bell curve, that's where the problem happens because, you know, just same discussion about building tract homes. I mean, by making a house for an average man, you've made a house that works for no man because there's no such thing as an average man. I've yet to meet an average person who's exactly 50th percentile in height, weight, arch height, uh, symmetry, hair color, distance between eyebrows, bone mass. Like there's no such human, right? So when, exactly. so when we make decisions based on this hypothetical peak of, of data, this this bell curve, then we're fit. We're, we're not serving anyone. We're just guessing. And you might as well, well just take a dart and throw it at a dartboard then. Well, but that's part of the problem with data collection. Are we collecting the right data? Right. And do we have the ability to actually use it? When I was at hospital for special surgery in New York, <coughs> excuse me, one of the people I work with is, is the director of PO, and we went to a meeting where they were demonstrating a new machine that measured gait. Mm -hmm. And it had like 25 different things that it measured in your gait to give the therapist tools for analyzing. And I remember this one therapist sitting there saying, this is wonderful. We've got all these 25 things. And my immediate superior asked a question, he says, what are we supposed to do with the 300 other things I see with my eye that the machine doesn't record? Right. And the point is, do you play to the machine or do you play to the body? Mm. So 
I, I will use the technology in conjunction with my skill set. But the goal is to develop your skills and put yourself in front of the machine, not put the machine in front of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, technologies come and technologies go. If you're going to do this thing, however, and fit bikes for a living, it's not the technology which is going to keep you in business. It's you who are making people feel better, more efficient, more comfortable. That's what's going to keep you in business. Mm -hmm. You can use all the computerized stuff you want, but understanding what the bike will do and understanding what the person will do on the bike is really what makes you a great fitter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I agree. I, and just to rewind for a moment on comment on one thing you said, you were talking about the difference between, I thought your comment was very interesting when you were speaking about the difference between uh, someone who's a PT and they've got a very clinical application versus someone who, and they go into bike fitting versus someone who's a salesman or a mechanic and they get an interest in bike fitting. And they, and both of those types of people tend to stay in their comfort zone. And for me, there's an exact parallel in the world of coaching in this respect. There are coaches who grew up in labs doing lactate testing and VO2 and all the things. Uh, and then there are riders who were racing in the Peloton, maybe as pros. And this is certainly the, this is the path I followed to become a coach. And I've got lots of practical experience. You know, I know what it's like to be in a gutter in Belgium at 56 K an hour getting dropped by 50 dudes and how to solve that problem or how to drop back to the car to get bottles, you know, how to handle your bike while you're riding in the rain, things like that. And maybe some people who were in the lab don't have that experience, but I also, my job is to understand their experience and understand their principles and teachings, which is what do the numbers of lactate mean? You know, understand and study physiology, at least on a level where I can discourse, have a discourse with them and I can apply it to my riders and think about both worlds. And I would argue that that's the same parallel. I think that's what you're saying in the world of fitting as well. You can take any path to get there, but ultimately we've got to see both sides of that coin or that equation, that spectrum. Yeah. You need to understand as much about what rake and trail mean on a bike as you do about understanding what a shoe size is between metric and non-metric. Right. It's all the same. It's all tools for the job. Mm-hmm. And we often underdefine what we do. Uh, I'm dreading the day when insurance companies start defining what bike fitting is. At some point, somebody's going to submit and an insurance company is going to say, this is a bike fit. This is what we expect. This is what we expect for a report. Mm. It's it's coming. Uh, there are enough PTs out there who have taken enough classes that sooner or later some insurance company is going to decide what it is we do. Yeah. I dread that day. Uh, I have been fitting longer than most, and I have many of the clinical skills to work with the therapist or the other clinicians. And I see a schism someday coming between the medical fitter and the non-medical fitter. And it is approaching, and there will be different skill sets. We all have people who claim to be experts. 
um, I'm still learning. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not a medical fitter. I don't know what one is. Mm-hmm. I have yet to meet anyone who says they are who didn't go to medical school. Uh, the flip side is you can know all about the body, but if you don't understand what it's going to do on a bike, mm-hmm. you're not going to be able to make the proper adjustments. I live in New York now. When I first moved to New York, I was riding in Central Park regularly. Some of the guys I was riding with were maitre d's in some of the finer restaurants in New York. But it was midday, and they were out doing a ride before dinner. And I used to talk to these guys because they raced as pros in Europe years before. And many of them got custom bikes from their local builders. And I would say, what's the difference between custom and production? And they would say, the guy would measure me. One bike would have a 57 top tube. The other bike would have a 54 top tube. Yeah. I'd say, why would they make them different sizes? And one would be my crit bike and one would be my stage bike. Which is your stage bike and which is your crit bike? This is where it got interesting. The stage bike had the shorter top tube <laughs> and then the longer stem. Right. And the crit bike had the shorter stem and the longer top tube. So the position didn't change, Mm. but the steering changed. Yeah. And this is what, why I always think about what are we looking at the bike to do? If you're a recreational rider, you don't need to dive into a hole in the middle of a sprint to try to get by somebody. You don't need to put a short stem to speed the steer. You're not going to have that kind of circumstance. Mm -hmm. The flip side is, if you're riding for a very long day, you may want a stem that's a little more forgiving as you ride and not quite as quick in the steer to keep yourself comfortable. Stem length can be used to serve a purpose other than as a fitting tool. It can be refining the use of the machine. So we need to know our bikes as well as our bodies mm-hmm. and what we're trying to provide. We also need to understand the machines we're working with. And less and less today do we find fitters who know the bikes. Mm. I mean, fitting used to be custom builders when I first started. They would measure you and they would come up with their own formulas and then Ben Serrata hit with a size cycle. Yeah. It wasn't the first, but it was the first commercial. What year was that? Uh, that was like 78, 79, 80, somewhere in there. Okay. We'd have to ask him to, to be precise. Mm-hmm. Um, I have one sitting in a closet from about that era, mm-hmm. as well as other tools from that age. I don't use a plum anymore. I don't need it. I also don't think it served the purpose we all thought it did. Mm -hmm. When you drop a plum, you're picking an arbitrary point to drop off of to an arbitrary point without looking at the mechanics of what they do. Today, when I'm setting up a bike, I'm looking to reduce hip flexion. I'm looking to reduce shearing off the top 
of the patella. I'm looking to reduce what I call impulse time. Mm -hmm. If you get somebody who's having knee pain, the longer the crank, the greater the amount of time they're going to spend pushing down on the tibial plateau. Mm -hmm. So for injured cyclists, one of the things I look at is impulse time, trying to reduce the amount of time and downforce generated on top of the patella during the fit. So it sounds like what you're saying is to reduce, to accomplish both those things, reduction of shear force on the patella and also prevent excessive hip flexion. The simple solution is shorter cranks, right? It sounds good to me. Yeah. Uh, in the last three months, I have recommended down as short as a 145. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've used swing cranks on top of short cranks. I had a guy a couple of years ago who had both of his femurs, but excuse me, but both of his tibias cut off and reinstalled. Mm. He he had issues and he had ten degrees of flexion on one side and thirty on the other, and we still managed to rig a bike up that he could ride. Mm-hmm. We used a swing crank on both sides, so he was never passing the plane of the spindle with his foot, but he was able to ride and generate a decent clip. Mm-hmm. Steve talks about this as well. I think you and Steve probably see a cross section of people that the average fitter certainly doesn't see, and I haven't seen a lot of either, and that's people with, we'll say, exceptional medical challenges. That requires very creative problem solving sometimes in bike fit, right? Oh, they're the most fun. <laughs> and they're the most they're the most satisfying. Yes. Because yeah. you get to do something that most people don't. Mm. And when you're successful, it's just so pleasurable. Yeah. Yeah. And what we do is we're problem solvers. Mm-hmm. It's I mean, that's, if you think about what you're doing, we're we're not salespeople, we're not, we're looking for a solution to a problem. And just to keep people feeling more comfortable with me, I also don't sell anything. I don't sell bars, I don't sell bikes, I don't sell saddles, Mm -hmm. I will loan them to you, but uh, I sell nothing. That's presumably so that people don't perceive there's a conflict of interest. There is no conflict that way. Right. You're only getting my opinion mm-hmm. and you're paying for my time. I understand that. Uh, I definitely can see that line of thought. I haven't gone that way in my own fitting. I take the the route just as a contrast. I, I do sell some bars. I do sell some saddles. I'll be selling some shoes. I do sell shoes currently as well. It's pretty simple. I sell the products that I use myself and I recommend uh, because I know they're really good products and they're they're problem solvers for me. I mean, uh, the number of riders I have that end up on SMP saddles is pretty staggering and I try really hard not to have a bias in that respect. I sell other saddles also. It's just a function of numbers. The majority of riders I put on those saddles have like a Nirvana experience where they can't believe how much discomfort they've been tolerating their entire career until they've gotten on this saddle. And it's not a perfect solution for everyone. 
And that's not the end goal. The goal of, of a fit for me is not to sell someone a saddle. It's to solve problems for them. Just as you said, we're problem solvers. I think that's an excellent way to say it. But sometimes I need tools to help solve those problems. I also need to pay my rent. So uh, you live in New York City. I won't complain about how rent's expensive at Boulder because <laughs> you probably got me beat there. <laughs> but it's like aspen prices. Right. Right. You're you're in one of the few places in the US that's more expensive than here, but so I try to I I do sell people things. I try to do that with authenticity and that how I handle that equation is simply to just to talk about this philosophically is to only recommend products that I use myself or have used myself and believe in as products. I mean, there are a lot of good products out there. There's a lot of garbage on the market that would I would never have in my fit shop. It doesn't matter how much someone wants it. If they want to go buy it, they can buy it somewhere else. Fortunately, half the time they come in with it already on their bikes. Yes. When they come to see me. I'm biased against integrated cockpits. Oh, the bane of bike fitting right now. It's a real challenge. It is so unfair to the cyclist who buys the bike because they don't know yep. that there aren't parts available. There's one company that I had a discussion a few years ago as they were about to come into the U.S. market with and basically i said so if you want me to fit your bikes you have a kit available to me with stems and bars that i can swap out right. and he said no right i said would you put together a kit he said why yeah and the discussion went on can i buy loose bars and stems from you to have he said no we make just enough to go on our, our bicycle production right yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, I, I get it on both sides from a manufacturer's perspective and from a, a I'm going to beat up on roadies here for a second for a weenie roadie guy or a lady who wants a super clean bike. I mean, aesthetically a bike with fully integrated cables, it looks really cool when you're at the coffee shop. Uh, it is a total pain in the ass to travel with and to work on. And if you want to change something, even making a change, assuming you have the proper tools to make the change, assuming that you want to go from a 110 by 40 bar to a 120 by 42 or whatever, assuming you've even got those two, the the bar you want to change to, which frequently, as you pointed out, you don't, the, the time and attention and mechanical knowledge needed to make that change is way beyond my pay grade or desires of fitter. Like, you know, there are times when clients want me to tape their bars. And if somebody wants to pay me $120 an hour to tape bars, I'm happy to do that. That's an easy way for me to chat with them and learn about them while we get their bars taped up. But you couldn't pay me enough to learn how to deal with all this DI2 internal wiring and all the gizmos you got to deal with to, to ch make these changes on these aero bikes. And it's an imposition for the fitter. Sorry, I'm kind of ranting now, but I got to say, it's a, it's a real challenge in the world of fitting because someone walks in the door with one of those bikes and I already do the math in my head. It's like, okay, I'm basically going to be using my fitting crystal ball to say, well, I can't change your bars or your stem because I don't carry this stuff. I couldn't carry it if I wanted to, and you don't have this stuff. So I pretty much have to guess to tell you, you need to go 20 mils shorter on your stem and 10 mils higher. Now go spend $700 on that setup, take it to a mechanic, spend another $300 of maintenance for them to disassemble and reassemble. And this is this is a challenge because as a fitter, do I want to take on that grand of, that's a grand in my opinion. Now, that's what we're paid to do is give our opinions for money. That's what all bike fitting is really. But this, most of the time, 
I can put someone in the position at least and make sure that that's where things are going to go. And of course you can use a Fitbite to do that, but there's still a certain amount of crystal ball that you got to have there. And that's yucky sometimes is <laughs> the adjective I would use. Yeah. yeah. I had one person come in with a bike. They didn't want to fit. They just wanted to know, does it fit or, or is it too big? Yeah. I took one look at the bike, one look at them, and said, it fits and it doesn't. The saddle height was fine, but the top tube was eight centimeters too long. Only eight, huh? <laughs> well, it could have been seven and a half in the morning. It could have been 10 in the evening as their bodies change over the day. But it was eight centimeters too long is a reasonable point. And part of the problem is I don't believe in women's and men's bikes. I believe in bikes that fit. Mm -hmm. And the top tube was very long and they weren't that tall and they weren't that, well, they were that flexible, actually too flexible, mm -hmm. which is why they were sold this bike. Yeah. They were ligamentous laxity, yeah. which is hypermobility. <coughs> and she could rest on the drops if you had the bike on a trainer. But you wouldn't last more than five minutes. Not that the salesman waited around long enough mm -hmm. to see that. So she was sold a bike that did not fit in length. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, it's very hard to find a bike with 650 wheels these days, which would have been perfect for her. Yeah. She wasn't that long. She was just flexible. And if we had found a bike with 650s, she would have been within the reach on the top tube that she could hold and support with her torso. Mm -hmm. And she would have been able to breathe and she would have been able to move on the saddle. So instead, she had saddle sores. She had numbness elsewhere in the crotch. Yep. She she had shoulder problems, and she had poor bike handling. Mm. It was a struggle to stay safe. And it wasn't the lack. It wasn't the intent of the salesman to sell a bike that didn't fit. It was they didn't know any better. We don't think about it. We don't teach in retail how to size a bike and as well, we say, oh, you want a red one? You want a blue one? You want a green one? I've got that. I can put fancy handlebar tape on. But what are you looking at when you're picking a size? We don't know. Because the other side of it is no two bike companies measure their bikes the same way as the others. Right. So you're comparing apples to donuts. <laughs> yes. Agree. I mean, Lack of standardization in the cycling industry is a massive challenge in so many, I mean, we're talking about bottom brackets. We're talking about frame sizing. We're talking about there, there are mountain bike companies that have geometry charts on their page that are literally half in inches and half in centimeters. Yeah. I mean, it drives me insane. The consumer has no chance, right? You can't compare bikes. Mm. Um, the salespeople half the time don't know the difference. 
You know, they're both 54s. Which right. 54 did they measure? 54 center to top, 54 center to center, 54 yeah. center to theoretical point right. that doesn't really exist. Right. That's an eyeball point with the bike level, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I, there are probably people who don't even know what center to top means anymore, I would guess, because um, it's an older reference, right? But I don't know. Maybe it's not, but... It's still used. Is it? Uh, yeah. I I tend to work mostly in stack and reach, much to the, um, I'll say, well, Steve's not thrilled about that metric for a bunch of reasons that I don't need to go into, but I find them to be pretty useful to compare frame geometries. Uh, is that, do you use stack and reach a lot to? Oh, I would wish it had never been invented because people come in looking for stack and reach and don't realize there's more of a bike behind it. Yes. Yeah. Of course there is, but I, for me, it's a good way to care, to at least make things in the same fruit basket. You're a fitter. Your skill set enables you to use stack and reach. Ah. The custom builder also is enabled to use stack and reach. The consumer is not trained to realize that there's more bike behind the stack and the reach. Uh, today, people don't know the difference between a 74 degree seat post and a 72.5 yeah. and don't understand what it will do to your bike handling. Yeah. Today, people don't understand what a road bike is versus a crit bike, never mind a gravel bike or a cross bike, but that bikes are built for different purposes and will handle differently. I am not a big fan of carbon fiber bikes because they have a limited variety. Most people buy a carbon fiber bike and they come in four sizes. I remember when a production run was 11. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look at Colnago is one of the few carbon manufacturers that's maintained that ability to have such a broad size range, right? And Pinarello as well. Yeah. But, but that's the point is to a consumer, they don't know the difference. Yeah. And unfortunately, by the time they get to me, they usually got the wrong bike. Yeah. You know, if you came to me to start off with, we'd figure out what was the proper one and then send you out shopping mm -hmm. with bar recommendations, um, probably not with seat recommendations, mm -hmm. I, but with being taught how to sit on a saddle. Mm -hmm. Most people, again, go to the issues. I want you floating and moving. So there's more latitude for finding comfort than if you just plop down and sit up like you're driving a tractor trailer, mm -hmm. which most people do. You see them, they're on the bike. They're like, yeah, this is kind of comfortable. They're wiggling their hips. That's not riding a bike. Mm. Riding a bike, you're, flo you're floating almost in the air because you're generating lift as you're generating downforce. Remember, your crank is doing things on both ends of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. Part of you is coming up, and that can be used to off-weight a saddle, as part of you is going down and driving that saddle. If you're not able to leverage the saddle to produce more power, then you might as well take advantage of the lift to keep you from being irritated by your saddle. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when I'm fitting, I'm intentionally trying to irritate you. It's the easiest way I know how to get your glutes to fire. I'll put you back on the back rail of a saddle 
and just say, keep pedaling until something gets aggravated with being pressed against. And we can get a reflex that causes the glutes to fire. Mm -hmm. So if, if we can get you to learn to fire your glutes, we can, we may have to do it manually. I've taken my thumb and shoved it up into a reflex point for an hour and a half. You can get people going if, as long as they're not neurologically shut down. Mm -hmm. if, if it's just atrophy, which most of it is, you'll get it to fire and then they'll wear it out in five minutes, but that's okay, they learned. Yes, they they got reintroduced to their glutes. You might say. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's nice to know you have them. Yeah. So, well, thinking uh, about your your discussion on frame size and handling characteristics and such, um, I'd like to share a quick story. When I was working with the Garmin team in 2014, uh, I had a chance to spend quite a bit of time in Girona, Spain, with the team and. They gave me a bike to ride over there, and this is when the team was on Cervelo on the first generation S fives. Was a very common. They were the guys rode. They had a choice between the R five and the S five, and the first generation of S fives, as you remember, probably had. You probably remember this, but they had massively tall, huge head tubes for the size frame. The fifty six, I think, had a. I don't know. It was like a seventeen centimeter head tube or something. It was huge, fourteen centimeters. <laughs> there were people who weren't racing yep. who could ride that bike. Who could ride that bike, yes. And that's really what the bike was made for, but it was very problematic for a team of pros who, of course, won a very aggressive position. And so we had three exceptionally tall riders on the team that year. We had Johan van Sumeren, uh, Ryder Hegedal, and David Miller. And all three of those guys are about, you know, six two, six three. uh that's like 192 centimeters, I think about. And um, if my conversion's right. And the solution for them, when they, if you tried to put them on a 58 or a 60, the head tube was way too big for them to get their bars low enough. So the team worked with 3T to make some stems that would solve the problem. So all those goes, all three of those riders rode S5s in a 56 size frame with a negative 17 by 150 stem. And so obviously that's more what you were saying about your the stage race bike geometry for your custom bike example. It was a, it's a much longer stem and a much shorter top tube. Yeah. And, and those guys managed to drive those bikes, you know, all year long just fine. I don't think any of them felt they were limited in their handling. At least if they were, they never indicated it to me. I was also given one of those bikes in a size 54 and I ride a very long, low frame. So I ended up pilfering a 150 by negative 17 3T stem from the mechanics to get that bike to work for me. And I also rode that bike all around Girona, not nearly as much as those guys did that year. You do less riding when you're staff member, of course, but I was able to keep up with them on descents just fine. Uh, and the other guys too, you know, Talansky and whatnot. And that was a bit of a lesson for me because I think to that point, I had sort of a conventional model in my head, which is that there is one, I'll say, perfect size bike frame for any person. And I don't really look at it that way now. I look at it more of as a spectrum. You know, a lot of riders could fit on, for example, a 54 or a 56 in a given manufacturer. And we could make, we could make their contact points in space the same. 
but what you'll get is different handling characteristics. And I think this is what you were saying earlier. You got a longer wheelbase, you're going to get a bike that's more stable at high speed. You get a shorter wheelbase, you're going to get a bike that is, we'll say, twitchier and responds to change in direction commands more quickly. Sometimes, frequently, I would argue, at the peril of the rider. You know, I think it's real common for bike racers to think uh, along that old school line of thought. A smaller frame is stiffer and lighter, which I think that argument has no weight at all. I think that's a total piece of crap argument, to be honest. But I'll take it a step further. Yes. If you get a small, tight frame and you put a stiff set of wheels on it, you're going to be bouncing off the pavement every time you hit a bump. Yep, yep. And you'll have less control. Yep. I would agree. You're also replacing what is an engineered structure. A bicycle frame is an engineered structure with basically extensions. Seat posts and stems are just gap fillers. You know, it's it's a it's a tube designed to attach a saddle to a frame. It's a tube designed to attach handlebars to a steering tube. It's not really I mean, yeah, there's a small amount of engineering in that structure, and yeah, we can make square stakes, we can make square-shaped stems or rectangular instead of round. But really, it's just an extension. But the the actual engineered structure, the thing that an engineer most of the time, most engineers have control over, is the frame as a unit, and everything else is not really considered in that engineering structure. So when you look at it that way, it makes way more sense to have more frame and less seat post, way more frame and less stem. Yep. There's a writer, J.P. Partland, who interviewed me for an article he wrote called Tour de Crash, mm. where we looked at stem to uh, frame ratios. And you could see how more riders were going head over handlebars in the modern bike than they were in previous years in the tour. Mm. And it has gotten worse in the last 10 years than it used to be. They used to lose back wheels and slide out. Now they go over the front. And you're saying that that's probably because uh, bikes are more front weighted because everyone's slamming the saddle forward and using longer stems. That's part of it. And shorter, tighter back ends. Yep. When you put all of that together, you make for a very tippy bike. Yeah. And some of those guys are riding 19 and 20 stems. Yes. It's crazy. I got to say, your concern about insurance agencies um, standardizing bike fitting is kind of my concern about manufacturers starting to really alter geometry to accommodate these really far forward positions, which I think are by and large a disaster. Um, Right there with you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really hope manufacturers don't start putting 78 degree C tube angles on road bikes and, and making the top tube six centimeters longer. It's just going to destroy, it's gonna destroy, the consumer. destroy the consumer and it's going to destroy handling. It's going to cause, well, I mean, <laughs> to be a jerk about it, it'll increase our business flow. Cause we're going to have a whole bunch of quad dominant people come in with SI joint problems and knee problems and, and no, no, well, that's that's for the dentist to deal with, but I don't I don't wish that on anyone. But it'll cause more physical dysfunction for sure. Absolutely. Not the direction I want to take my business, though. I'd rather be. For, I you know the the majority of my athletes who walk to my door are either athletes who are relatively happy with their fit and they want to, you know, cross some I's and dot some T's and and optimize performance, or they're athletes who are on the verge of quitting the sport 
because they've got chronic injuries and they've already been to three or four fitters and they can't fix their, you name it, knee pain, hip pain, back pain, chronic IT band issues, saddle sores. I've had a rash of people come through recently, no pun intended with chronic saddle sores, uh, where they're on the verge of quitting because they can't sit on a bike seat without extreme discomfort. Um, it sounds like your cross-section of clients is much more broad. You've obviously got people who have real medical issues and are referred to you from the hospital. I've got that end. And on the other end, I've got pros. And I define pros two different ways. There are pros who are in a living that supports the cycling. And there are pros who support their life by cycling. Mm -hmm. If you have a day job, you're in a different tier than if you're fully funded by a team. And the big issue for pros besides injuries is speed deficit. Everybody wants to be faster. Mm -hmm. And the question is, why are they not faster? And it's often an issue of poor mechanics and it's not physiological, but they don't know how to ride the damn bike. Mm-hmm. they generate plenty of horsepower, but horsepower doesn't take you around a turn. Right. Horsepower will take you up a hill. Horsepower will take you to a sprint, but horsepower doesn't take you around that corner. doesn't take you over the cobblestones. You got to learn how to ride the bike. Yep. You know, uh, I think it was DeBakey, who was the doctor who did the, um, first heart transplant in South Africa, I believe. Mm-hmm. That God, when I was a kid, who was, is a cyclist, I've been told. And somebody once said that DeBakey was asked, what do you think about training by power? And he said, it doesn't tell you whether you're going to have a heart attack. Meaning what? Meaning if you're training by heart rate, you can see deviations in ah. your numbers which okay. can alert you to a problem. Yes. I see. You know, fitting and producing power are not necessary. I can set you up and boost your power output. I can also blow your knees out. <laughs> right. Cycling's about repeatability and sustainability. Yeah. Yes. Not just over a long five-hour ride, but over months and years. Yes. Yeah. The point is, what is the goal of what we're trying to produce? Mm. Are we just trying to make horsepower or are we trying to make you a better cyclist and give you longevity? Mm -hmm. I can always find another 10 watts somewhere. Mm. It's not necessarily going to be a nice place to pull it from. Mm -hmm. It it may screw up the tracking of your knees. It may put a little extra stress on your hips, but I can find it, Uh, but I'm not going to go looking for it. For me, I'm looking for lowering your heart rate, making you more efficient, making you more comfortable, making the bike handle better. And as a byproduct, getting a few extra watts. Right. Well, yeah. And to expand on that concept, I think people tend to think very superficially about this problem from the conversations I've had. I I try really hard not to imagine what other people think, but I'll say that people come in and they think, well, you know, will this change this raising my saddle, lowering my saddle, you know, putting in these footbeds, whatever we're talking about, will it give me another 
10 watts on my 20 minute power or, you know, however many, will it increase my power over a given duration, whether that's at the state time trial championships or up a hill climb or for my 20 minute efforts that I do to impress my coach or to establish my, my zones and my threshold power. Okay. That's a reasonable question, but all too frequently, I think that's a very first grade level way to look at the problem. If you're making a rider more comfortable on the bike and more energy efficient, it doesn't mean their threshold or their five minute power will ever get a single watt higher. But what it can mean is that over the course of months of training, if we select a single hard road race, for example, you know, six months after the fit, after three or four hours of racing, you may be able to more reliably repeat, repeat efforts right? And it mean so that's not going to show up in the data. I mean, it could in time in zones, we can do things like look at 20 minute power after 3000 KJs. I mean, WKO has got all kinds of ways to slice up the data and we may, but how do you, the, the question then becomes, how do you attribute that increase in power? How do you attribute that ability, the rider's ability to maintain 98% of the same 20 minute number after 3000 KJs worth of work? Do you attribute that to their fit or do you attribute that that to them just getting stronger through six months of training? And it's impossible to disseminate those factors. But these are the types of conversations we have to have. A rider can figure it out if they really have a good intuition and then a good understanding of what their own limits are. How many times did you finish a road race or your 140 mile gravel race in pieces because your lower back was so stiff you couldn't stand up at the awards ceremony versus when you finished your last 140 mile gravel race, six months after your fit, which was by your standards, perhaps more conservative, I'm saying the rider standards, but they were able to complete that race and then not only stand up at the award ceremony, but maybe they were part of it. These are the types of fitting outcomes that are really hard to quantify. And it makes our profession arguably a difficult one at times to I won't say argue for, cause it's not my job to argue for it, but to explain perhaps. But there aren't many of us yet in the caliber to have these issues. Mm. We have a small pool of high end fitters who can create the problem you're having mm -hmm. of this in, distinguishing whether or not it was training or fitting that made the difference. I view my addition to the component is the recovery phase in your pedal stroke. Mm -hmm. If you don't recover, you are limited in what you can do. Racing on the caliber you're racing, you're racing more than two days a week. So having a recovery phase in your pedal stroke is an important portion to your career. If you have no recovery, it limits the amount of racing and increases the amount of rest you have to do in between workouts. Mm -hmm. So looking at the gastroxoleus, that's your recovery phase. That's pumping the blood back up. That's making your heart work less. You know, if I can knock you down two, three beats a minute times eight hours, that's a substantial amount of reduction of wear and tear on your heart. Mm -hmm. And if you figure that out over the course of a whole season, the math gets really interesting. Hmm. And so when you talk about that gastroxoleus complex being a pump, 
Are you? Is it the same thing as ankling? No, it's the same. You can ankle and not get a contraction. Okay. You need the contraction. The contraction on the downstroke. Just as you need the contraction on the plantar fascia to mm-hmm. pump fluid out of your shoes. Okay. If you don't get the contraction, you don't get the benefit. Mm. When you lock up the gastroc with too long a crank arm, you come over the top and you're riding pumps. You're up too high. Your hip may be rotating medially or laterally to accommodate. We need to think about more than just the watts generated. We need to think about the the efficiencies we're losing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which takes us right back to that conversation about how do we quantify things. And, and there's some stuff you can't double blind, right? Um, I'm trying to figure out how to measure actual blood flow. The problem is if we do a cardiac catheter in the artery, that's very invasive. Yeah. We can measure the amount of blood coming out of the gastroc and back up. We can also go to radioactive isotope, but that's also yeah rather invasive. Problematic, yeah. Well, we, we could do a Doppler. The problem is the velocity of a calf on a bike racer. Yes. We tend to launch a rather expensive instrument, <laughs> the head of an ultrasound machine. Right. Across the room. Right. So that doesn't work. So well, I'm waiting for smaller, lighter ultrasound machines that we can strap to the back of your calf that will stay in place so we can get a good measurement. Well, I, I'm not, I haven't used this device a ton, but I have several colleagues who have, it sounds like you're describing a moxie to me, but, um, they use nears to measure blood flow, right? That's what it is. Yeah. I've had this conversation with them. Okay. They don't think they can give me the data I want. I see. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's um that's quite interesting. The other thing that makes me think of is all the years that I raced on the track and did six days in particular, where I'm quite sure there's very little pumping of the gastroxoleus complex at those cadences. I, I, I mean, maybe there's these fractions of a second where it happens. I'm sure you're pushing down on the pedal with the calf, but you're pedaling so quickly and subject to such high G-forces during those races. I mean, I had... I had six days where I was racing at 55 K an hour for an hour straight in a, you know, 50 in a. It doesn't mean you can't be trained to do it. Right. It's understanding that it's there and that it works. Mm. And if you don't know it's there, you're not looking for it. Yeah. The next time you go out for a ride, you're going to look for it. I bet. Yeah. Well, if I make it out this afternoon, we'll see what happens, but it's It's nice here today. You know, by getting your your glutes to fire, we can bring your knees into line and we can get your gastroc to fire. Mm. Yeah, as you said, uh, I think in your article that I read, we'll definitely put a link to this in the show notes, your Bike Fit Unplugged article. I think one of your observations there is quads are poor poor knee stabilizers. Yep, they're really bad at it. Yeah. And we rely way too much on your quads to keep your knees tracking straight. The flip side is 
we re we can rely way too much on putting something underneath your shoe or in your shoe to do the same. Right. When if we get you can manage your own glutes, so you can get as much correction or as little correction as you want once you understand the mechanism. For me, it it just comes down to you know too much repetitive use of of the same limbs, and in particular when you've got dysfunctional use of those limbs, uh, sorry joints, I guess I should say. Really, it's going to lead to you're going to spiral further and further down into kind of a negative wormhole of, of crappiness. And that's, that's what we're talking about here is that quad dependence, right? Yep. Yeah. The quad dependence is not going to help you. Yeah. It's a limited resource. To me, it's the, the last sprint that you're going to need it. And that's what you should save it for. Mm -hmm. Or yep. if, you know, if you know, you're going to run, on your bike, like in the cyclocross, you're going to need those quads. Yep. Don't burn them out just because you don't have another resource. Learn to use your body. Yeah. Yeah. One of the big takeaways here is that I think beginning cyclists or cyclists with saddles that are slammed really forward and really high tend to generate most torque around the knee. We really want you to generate most of your torque in the hip. And, and that's not only from a physiological perspective or an anatomical perspective, this is an energy perspective. Your Dantian is where you generate your creative and will force from an energy standpoint. This is your Dantian is the spot just below and inside of your belly button. And that's in, in martial arts, this is the area where you generate power, right? When you stand in a horse stance, this is your energy center. I know I'm getting a bit out of normal bike fitting talk here, but that concept serves to illustrate that the hip hinge is the essence of cycling. That's what you're doing. You're bending that axis passes right through the Dantian. This is where power is generated from. And if you watch old school cyclists, you can see them generating power from the hip. Uh, I'd have to be a little selective about the examples I use there because there are some that don't necessarily pedal that way. But anyway, without going down that rabbit hole. <laughs> well on that topic happy maybe uh we've been going for a while here maybe i can just ask you one last question if you don't mind and then we'll we'll call it a day uh i'd love to know what you think of maybe you could give us a couple of examples of riders if you feel up for it you could pick on some modern riders you think their positions might use some improvement but if you don't want to go there maybe you can give us some shining examples of modern riders professional riders who or even uh, old school riders who you think are outstanding examples of a rider with good function and good fit. Well, I'm going to go old school because I know too many people. Okay, fair enough. Um, I watched Eddie Merckx in Montreal at Worlds years ago. Mm -hmm. His form would not be what I'd call perfect, but very efficient. He was everything. He would adjust his bike on the fly himself. Yeah, I remember him. Didn't he used to pull over sometimes and raise his saddle a couple mils before long mountain passes? Yes, he did. Yeah, I remember that reading that somewhere. He looked at it everything he could to be as efficient as possible. Mm. 
he wasn't worrying about being the most powerful guy in the field, which he was. Yeah. <laughs> but he knew the race today was today and he was going to be doing it somewhere else tomorrow. So the point you learn from Eddie is you don't burn yourself out beating everybody. You just beat them and go ahead and do it again. I think somebody did the calculations and it's like the last two years of his career, he won three out of every five bike races mm-hmm. or placed in the top five, three out of every five during that the last couple of seasons. I'm pretty sure to this day, he's the winningest rider in cycling history by a good margin. Yeah, if you're listening to this, you don't know who Eddie Merckx is or you can't spell Merckx, shame on you. Go, go forth and educate yourself. <laughs> By comparison, you have Lance. Right. Lance is a big, good old boy. He stretches out all over the bike, but he's not that mobile. No. He doesn't move, and that, over the years, got him into trouble. Mm. If he wasn't powering away from you, he was not great in the field. You'd see him sit off the back. Mm-hmm. You know, so his talent was huge amounts of horsepower. Of course, yeah. we, now know, we now know he had more than gasoline in the tank. Yes. Yeah, you're right. His racing tactics were all blunt force instrument, which yeah. is, you know, I, I won't, I also want to point out, highlight, I'd say that this isn't just random coincidence. This is also a function of Lance as a human. He look at his personality. His entire personality is a blunt force instrument. If you, if you had to make Lance into an object, it would be a baseball bat or a mace. You know, if you made Eddie Murrocks into an object, it would be a chessboard. or right. Is that fair to say? Like, and, and I'll, he did no more than he needed to. Right which that's how you win multiple jerseys during a grand tour, not just the overall, the yellow Jersey, but the points Jersey and the climbing Jersey. Like this is how you do things like this is by being calculating and smart about your strength, right? Not just smashing people left, right and center all over the place when it works for you. Different perspectives, Yep. both amazing athletes in their own right. I mean, Lance, you know, sauce and Oprah or not, he was, unquestionably a ridiculously talented athlete. I'm not disparaging his ability to go fast on a bike, but I'm just commenting on how Lance did the things he did and does the things he does to a degree to this day. So yeah, finesse was not his skill set. Nope. Nope. If you want finesse, we go to the track mm-hmm. and look at Kiyoshi Nakomo, who was an Olympic sprinter from Japan. Mm-hmm. who was just beautiful to watch, taking you from behind or in front. It didn't matter. He was going to pass you. And it's a whole different, it's still bike racing, but it's a whole different ball of wax. Yes. And it, it's all about finesse. Mm. Well, likewise, we can also have blunt force instruments on the track. Marty Nolstein being the example of that, I would argue. Oh, Definitely, he'd yeah. steamroll you yeah. if he needed to get by you. <laughs> or hook you and take you to the rail. Yeah, <laughs> but that also happens even with roadies. Yes. Uh, you know, there are a few I can think of who would 
if you were up there and they didn't know who you were, you had to look out for each light post yeah. on the edge of the course. Yep. <laughs> well, happy. Uh, I really appreciate you taking time to speak with me today and share your philosophies on bike fitting. Um, you know, you, it's a real honor to be uh, having discussion with you. You're, you're certainly one of the founding fathers of bike fitting. I think it's fair to say, and uh, thank you for your contribution today and your time and, and your input. I really appreciate it. It's been great. Oh, it was my pleasure and a lot of fun. Attention, Space Monkeys, public service announcement. Really, technically, it's a disclaimer. You already know this, but I'm going to remind you that I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a doctor. So don't take anything on this podcast to constitute lawyerly or doctorly advice. I don't play either of those characters on the internet. Also, we talk about lots of things, and that means we have opinions. My guests' opinions are not necessarily reflective of the opinions of anyone who is employed by or works at Fast Talk Labs. Also, if you want to reach out and talk to me about things, feedback on the podcast, good, bad, or otherwise, you may do so at the following email address, info at cyclinginalignment.com. That's all spelled just like it sounds, which again is self-evident. Gratitude.